0: The next patient, presented by Dr. Schwartz, is another example of the potential complexities
1: of diagnosis in metastatic breast cancer management. The patient currently is 42 years old. In 1994, at the age of 28, the patient underwent biopsy of a right breast mass, which demonstrated a grade 2 invasive ductal cancer. The tumor was ER negative by a RECA technique, and reportedly weakly progesterone receptor positive. The patient then underwent a left-sided lumpectomy and axillary lymph node dissection. At this time, there was residual lobular cancer with lymphovascular invasion. On this specimen, the tumor was positive for both estrogen and progesterone receptor. Two of 22 axillary lymph nodes were involved, as was one of the margins from the lumpectomy, and the patient decided to undergo a completion mastectomy with implant reconstruction. As adjuvant treatment, again, in 94, she received four cycles of AC and no additional adjuvant hormonal treatment. She did well, very well. In fact, she had a child. She waited five years from diagnosis, had her second child, and did well until 2006 when she was found to have elevated markers. At that point, a PET-CT was performed and demonstrated lesions. There was no CT correlate, but there was uptake in the anterior mediastinum. Beneath the reconstruction of the right chest wall, right hilum, paraortic, and portal hepatic nodes, SUVs ranging up to six. Reviewed the films with radiology. There was really no site readily accessible for biopsy. Patient was watched a little longer and had a repeat PET scan several months later. Again, the sites that just demonstrated increased uptake, and the tumor marker, specifically the CA27.29, had increased further.
0: What do you do in this situation, Eric, where it's really difficult to get tissue, but yet it's you know 12 years after the primary?
2: Yeah, well, I think I would do pretty much what Mike did here, which is that she was watched for a number of months. The tumor markers were watched. You know, in truth, I don't get tumor markers when i'm following someone after their initial therapy but you know in this situation where they were obtained i would watch them she was evaluated with a pet ct which showed apparent disease and you know at some point in time there was just enough reason to believe that this was metastatic disease that you push the button and of course it's easier to push the button with hormonal therapy than with chemotherapy. It would be hard for me. In fact, I would go so far as to say it would be impossible for me in this situation to give chemotherapy 12, 14 years out without a biopsy of metastatic disease. But I can conceive of giving hormonal therapy here.
1: So actually, that's when she came under my care. I wasn't following her initially, but at this point where we had imaging and blood work evidence of disease progression under observation, she was started on an aromatase inhibitor and Zolodex. She actually switched aromatase inhibitors early because of some arthralgias. and went back and forth, but they improved. On the Zoladex, which she was receiving monthly, we could not fully suppress her estradiol level.
0: So you were checking her blood work, and she wasn't suppressed?
2: Yeah. How often do you see that, Eric? It actually happens. You know, The question is whether it matters, although there's certainly reason to believe that with an aromatase inhibitor, it could matter. As you know, there are adjuvant trials that are going on using ovarian suppression and the aromatase inhibitors. In those studies, we don't routinely check estrogen levels for clinical purposes. But she's still
0: having her periods?
2: No. Hmm. But, you know, you actually don't have to have menstrual cycles in order to have elevated estrogen levels. And the question there is, does that in some way, in an obvious way, negate the aromatase inhibitor? In truth, it's one of the reasons why outside of a trial in somebody who's premenopausal, I typically would use tamoxifen, even if I were using ovarian suppression. Here, you can't argue with success because she's done very well. You know, if I were starting an initial therapy, I probably would start ovarian suppression and tamoxifen in a woman with metastatic ER positive breast cancer. So she got an AI with Mm -hmm. suppression. What did you do once you found out you weren't suppressing her? Well,
1: it turns out she had had two children and after that had her tubes tied. So it was a fairly easy decision, which I probably could have made a couple of months earlier, to send her
2: for oophorectomies. You know, and in a woman with metastatic disease, you know, typically if the treatment works, you're going to continue it indefinitely. If it doesn't work, if she started with tamoxifen, she's going to move on to an AI and you're going to need that ovarian suppression And if those treatments don't work, she's going to wind up getting chemotherapy and ultimately her ovaries aren't going to work. So in a premenopausal woman with metastatic breast cancer, oftentimes it makes sense if the patient's comfortable with it to just move ahead with the oophorectomy.
1: So she got the oophorectomy, then what? And continued on the uh, aromatase inhibitor, which this case happens to be an astrazole. And after four months, her marker came down. And at five months, we repeated a PET scan and the scan demonstrated resolution of activity in all sites of disease except for an increase in size and activity in an anterior superior mediastinal mass. Any sort of general comments
2: about PET scans and in her specific situation, Eric? Well, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of PET scans. I think they do have a role occasionally, but most of the time I still get... Plain old CT scans and an occasional bone scan. But I think these comments apply both to a PET scan and to any imaging study, which is you just have to be careful about what you see. And, you know, in this situation where you have somebody who's asymptomatic, although she was asymptomatic to begin with, her tumor markers have come down. Most of the areas that were abnormal on the imaging study are better. There's one that's worse. I wouldn't be in a rush to say that her disease is worse based on this finding, and I think it just is a reminder that you have to be very careful with any result that's discordant with the rest of the picture.
1: Now, could you have gotten along without a PET scan? I mean, could regular CT have... Well, I agree that almost always you can. In this case, and again, she was sent to me with the PET scan, but they couldn't correlate the abnormalities on the PET scan with anything on CT scan except for this growing thymic mass. So I think in this case, it was helpful. I mean, the marker, obviously, we don't like to treat somebody based on a rising marker alone. But even though, you know, gut feeling, I didn't think she was progressing, and I didn't think this meant anything. It was sort of hanging over our heads. What did this represent? was, you know, why was this mass growing? And could it be something, you know, not related to breast cancer? And I decided to send her for a mediastinoscopy which demonstrated thymic hyperplasia, no malignancy. What do you know about thymic hyperplasia? I've had a couple of patients who have had similar events, but they've always been young, as the case here, but they've been patients being treated with chemotherapy. So that's just Hodgkin's disease, ABVD. And I think it's even reported in the PET scan literature that you can see thymic rebound. I don't know that if it's ever been reported in somebody on hormonal therapy. It's hard to imagine exactly how that works. We did look at the PET imaging on this particular
2: cases, and it's fortunate we have radiologists to read PET scans because they're really hard. When scans are so obvious that you don't need a medical degree, then, in fact, it's pretty straightforward. But, you know, oftentimes we're talking about pretty subtle lesions, and you really need to lean heavily on one's imaging colleagues. That said... You know, I often remind our fellows and actually have to remind myself how useful it is just to take a quick look at an image before you see somebody. Because, you know, what is, for example, you know, you'll get a report and it'll say, you know, multiple hepatic lesions. And, you know, hearing that, you have a picture in your head and you don't know really, unless the radiologist is very specific, whether that's multiple lesions that are all very small or multiple lesions that are taking up the bulk of the liver. And just getting a quick glance is often very useful before you talk to someone.
1: So this woman now, is what's her situation? So right now she's been on the aromatase inhibitor for 22 months, had imaging studies several months ago that showed no activity except for that thymic mass, which we're no longer worried about. And her marker remains negative. And she works full time and sees me about every four months.
0: What was your impression of her personally, Eric?
2: She seems like she's doing great. It's interesting that, you know, she made the comment that when Mike called her up to ask her to come in to see us, because she had had a recent PET CT, you know, her immediate reaction was, oh, my goodness, you know, things are worse. And... You know, at some point in time, it's likely that her cancer will be worse, but the good news is that she's had a very, very long disease-free interval. She's done great with this therapy, and the hope is that she will do well on endocrine therapy for a long time to come.
0: So what would you be thinking, Mike, if she developed progressive disease or when she does?
1: Well, I would go with another hormone, you know, basilex. I would probably prefer over tamoxifen. Any particular reason? I just think the response rate to tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitor failures, although maybe not well looked at, I have a sense is not great. What would you be thinking about next?
2: I think you could take your pick between any number of therapies. I think you could use tamoxifen, you could use faslodex, you could, in truth, use another aromatase inhibitor. And here, one would hope that her chance of responding is higher than the average patient given a Very, very long disease-free interval and what has been a very good response to initial endocrine therapy. Just one comment. It's interesting to speculate what impact the pregnancy might have had on all of this. Not that we tell our patients to deliberately get pregnant, but virtually all of the retrospective studies that have looked at pregnancy after breast cancer suggest that if anything, women who become pregnant have a better outcome than Matched women who don't. Now, there is the so called healthy mother bias, which would suggest that a woman who's able to become pregnant may be physiologically different and may do better. And no one could ever do a randomized study. But it is interesting that all of these studies have a point estimate that looks better for those who become pregnant than not. And you just wonder whether there in some patients may be some benefit associated with the hormonal changes that arise in pregnancy after a diagnosis of breast cancer. So maybe that's why she didn't recur for 14 years? Who knows? But, you know, there may be many reasons why she didn't recur for 14 years. But I think there's still a great deal that we don't know in terms of hormonal influences on breast cancer. And clearly there is something in her That happened from a hormonal standpoint. She went through a major hormonal shift about five years after her diagnosis. And, you know, maybe it had some impact in terms of delaying this. Maybe not.
1: Yeah. And I think the other point that we didn't really talk much about, and Eric actually, I think, clarified it for me, you know, she never got adjuvant hormonal therapy. And I thought, really, that was a missed opportunity, and uh, as you brought out, it probably just reflected the data that was available back then about not really being established to give adjuvant hormonal therapy in premenopausal
2: women. You know, in 1994, a lot of premenopausal women still did not get adjuvant therapy. Now, that said, there's one other point here, which is that she, when she was diagnosed, had a lobular cancer that was initially reported as being estrogen receptor negative. And There's still a lesson there today, which is that, you know, in excess of 95% of lobular cancers are estrogen receptor positive. So, if as a doctor taking care of somebody, you see somebody who has a well to moderately differentiated lobular cancer, and oftentimes they're not even graded unless they're pleomorphic and high grade, but so a lobular cancer that otherwise, you know, is not particularly unusual looking, and it is said to be ER negative you should ask somebody to repeat that ER stain. And of course, you know, today we're moving more and more towards hormonal therapy, in some cases as the only therapy in women, some number of women with ER ER-positive breast cancer. One can imagine that for her, adjuvant endocrine therapy might have been very, very important back then and that the chemotherapy may actually have done relatively little. What about the issue of adherence? She's taken in AI. Did you ask her? Do you
0: think she's taking it reliably?
1: Yeah. In this particular patient, she's definitely taking the pills. And, and when she was having arthralgias and trigger fingers related to it, she would report them and say, but I'm sticking on this. You know, I can gut this out. So, But it is often an issue because they do get a lot of arthralgias, and I often wonder if they take it every day or they take a day off every now and then.